0: Hello, and welcome to episode nine of Interop Talk. I'm Dave Castle, Chief Customer Officer at Health Gorilla and former Executive Director of Cure Quality, uh, And I'll be uh, your moderator today as usual. And, and also as usual, we have our regular crew here today. Dr. Stephen Lane is the Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla and former Director of Clinical Informa- Informatics and Interoperability at Sutter Health. Uh, Jennifer Blumenthal is the Director of Product for One Record and Telescript. And Devin McGraw is the Data Sharing Lead at Invite, Co-Founder of Citizen and former Deputy Director of Health Information Policy at HHS. Welcome one and all. So Devin, let's actually start with you. Uh, we saw that you authored a piece in Healthcare IT Today urging HIEs and HINs to prepare now for information blocking compliance. Uh, can you share a bit more about your, your perspective on, on information blocking with respect to HIEs and HINs?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, the information blocking rules have been in effect technically for quite a bit of time. So this is not new stuff, but we have been waiting Uh quite a bit of time for the Office of the Inspector General, which is the entity within the Department of Health and Human Services, which is charged with actually enforcing the rule to finalize its procedural rule regarding how they're going to enforce. And they focused in particular on the two types of actors covered by the information blocking rules, where there are already established in the information blocking statutory provisions from the Cures Act, as well as the regulations, you know, the penalties are already set for those two types of actors. And that's health information exchanges and health information networks, which have the same functional definition, they're not two separate things. And then um, certified electronic medical record vendors. And so they're subject to penalties of up to a million dollars per violation. And so we had been waiting for OIG to finalize this enforcement rule in order to understand when penalties might start getting issued. And so that finally happened. And that rule takes effect September 1st, end of this week. So we thought it was really important to, I thought it was really important to, you know, say, hey, remember this information blocking rule that I think everybody sort of fell asleep on and wondered whether anything was ever going to happen? Well, guess what? Finally, the gloves are off, at least for two types of actors. And there's now a very real possibility that at least two types of actors covered by the rule could be there could be investigations and then um, potential penalties. And of course, our interest in this has always been around the ability of patients to access data from HIEs and HINs. But there are you know, a host of sort of potential ramifications around access to um, data, even through certified electronic medical records, through the types of networks that certified electronic medical records vendors run, um, it's, you know, it's the day of reckoning or the potential day of reckoning (laughs) feels like it's finally around the corner. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, some of these entities that are covered by these rules have been thinking, you know, maybe there's not something serious going on about information blocking rule enforcement or that they have a lot of time to prepare Mm -hmm. for supporting use cases that they have not customarily supported you know essentially the piece was well you know what if you don't have if you don't meet a safe harbor for a particular use case you could end up being investigated and then have to defend before the OIG why you are deciding not to exchange with certain for certain purposes or or you have terms and conditions around exchange that are very difficult or you know, beyond what it what might be reasonable to impose, don't meet a safe harbor, et cetera. So I'll stop there because I, I suspect my my friends have some things to say about this, so plus me. <laughs> well,
2: I'm, I'm happy to add to that, Devin. Um, I think the, the Friday deadline is is pretty important because as you say, we've been talking about the information blocking rules for years and a lot of entities, certainly in the provider world, made a lot of changes to their workflows, to their systems, et cetera, uh, to accommodate this. But 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 the penalties, will only now begin to start coming out. And what we've heard, what I've heard at the ONC uh, through the meetings that, that you and I attend there is that the OIG is not planning on investigating any of the claims that were submitted up to this Thursday, basically. That you know the, o- the ONC has had a portal open where people could uh, report information blocking uh, concerns since April of 2021 and nearly a thousand reports have been put in there, the vast majority of those coming from patients and the vast majority of them being, you know, charges against providers for not sharing data and potentially blocking access to information. A very small proportion of those have been against HIE, HINs, you know, which are one of the two actors who, uh, where we might start to see penalties, only three of the complaints that have been registered through the ONC portal in the past, you know, a couple of years, two and a half years have been against HIEHIN actors, and only about 100 of them have been against developers of certified health IT, the other actor group where this deadline this week comes into play. So So one thing that we've heard is that basically the OIG will only investigate those claims that are that are submitted starting on Friday. So if there are any outstanding claims that have been submitted over the past two and a half years that people feel are still problematic, they need to be resubmitted. I don't think that has been broadly communicated. You know, and we've also heard that that the OIG is likely to find a resubmission to be you know at least suggestion of ongoing concern right because that's one of the criteria that they have is if it's an ongoing practice so if if a information blocking complaint was registered you know a year ago and now the same thing gets registered starting on friday you know that that would tend to in my mind think that it's going to float to the top in terms of what oig is going to investigate because we know that like like any agency they're going to have limited resources. They're going to have to prioritize what they're going to look into, what they're going to pursue. You would presume that they would try to pursue those things where they're they're most likely to to find, you know, a, an issue. Because I think there is a real desire to to help clarify the information blocking rules by way of these investigations and by way of of penalties. And the other thing that we heard, you know, at ONC meetings is is that they're not going to be that enthusiastic about um, let levying penalties right away that the first couple of years of this process um, are going to be mostly about educating, about, you know, helping people understand what they're really after. I love your reaction, Jennifer. But uh, but so, I mean, I, I don't know what we're going to see. You know, it's, it's really just two actor types. There have been very few complaints. They're really only starting with the new complaints. Now, having said that, the vast majority of complaints are against providers. For not making their data available. and we've talked about that here before and we'll talk about it some more. But the rule for the provider disincentives and penalties if that ends up being one of the disincentives is not even expected in draft form uh, until later this year. And uh, and as we've also discussed, you know, getting a final of that is going to take some time. Uh, I continue to hope it'll it'll show up next year sometime, but uh, but time only time will tell. Uh, so I think I think we are at the very beginning of the journey of information blocking investigations and edu- more another type of education that would come through these uh, investigations and potential penalties. But I think this is still, we've still got years to go until the dust settles on this process.
3: So I know we're talking about HAEs, but the way that I, I'm like Devin, I think about it from like a patient access perspective. When I think about this, you have two actors you have the CERT technology vendors, and you have the HIEs. And then you have to think about how do they offer access to data, right? The CERT technology vendors, they're, they have to expose those Fire APIs, and they have to expose the Fire endpoints at the client level, which is, you know, building the foundation for a national directory. And then you have the HIEs, which have to support, you know, patient access too. And each of them have their own difficulties. So I'm going to start with the HIEs first. Right now, you know, I've been asking Devin about this. We've been approached by a couple of very forward-thinking HIEs who are like, we will either expose a fire API to you, uh, we will handle the OAuth mechanism. That means they have an existing portal, or they're gonna implement, you know, an IAL two vendor like Clear or LexisNexis or ID.me so that they can identity proof people for the HIE and then they can have that kind of OAuth login. I also see those states that are proactive also they were states that maybe had to expose, there's some relationship at the state level between the HIE and then the state Medicaid, like they have already exposed maybe pay or patient access APS. And then you have other states who are saying, absolutely not, we have the state laws that say that we can't expose data to patients, and they're going to be the probably the laggards. And then you have the ones in the middle who are kind of just waiting to see what happens. Like Devin really and her organization, in my mind, are pushing for the Patient access via HIEs better than anyone else that I can see in the landscape, because you know, right now, not just we'll expose an API, they're also thinking, do we participate nationally via the networks? And some of them can, and some of them can't because of state laws. So you're having this dichotomy—is that the word? Contrast this contrast between like federal mandate and state law, and all the privacy things that trickle down through state and local policy. So I'm really interested to see which HIEs say, okay, we will expose an API or we will allow queries via Cure quality, Commonwealth or feature QNs, right? E-Health Exchange, sorry, e Exchange, obviously you're set up for this. Um, then you have the EHR problem, which you have the top 10 vendors who, you know, they had DSTU two APIs. We've talked about this a lot. But it's the rest of the market it's like the 200 plus ehrs who do not have production ready apis and the biggest thing that i'm finding that i consider information blocking right now is that these 200 plus ehrs do not want to expose the fiery URLs at the client level they think their client list is proprietary and i think the onc is in for a rude awakening this is how it connects to tefka everybody follow me here is that in tefka we're going to have a national directory you have to upload those endpoints. I mean, yes, you can create a hub and the endpoints will be behind that, but there should be exposure down to a site level, which organizations are listed. So EHR companies are going to have to, in some way, expose their client list, whether they participate in TEFTA with future rulemaking and incentives, or through what is already required in both the current law and proposed law. And so the question is, will OIG find EHRs to be info blockers if they won't expose the firewalls at the client level today, or I guess as of September first? Friday. I'm so excited. I, I I can't tell you how excited I am for this because I have been waiting for years, for years, and now we just get to see what's going to work, what's going to not work. We didn't have data before, so everyone who's a naysayer on this law, or what you know, what the downstream repercussions is. They obviously have never built a product. They do not have enough data to make any sort of assessment on the success of this law. So to me, the biggest thing is, will an HIE expose an API? Will they allow, will they join national networks, whatever Tesla is going to look like? Will the EHRs expose their client list? And even the providers, you know, upgrade to that, uh, we'll call it their G10 solutions. That's another thing. A lot of, EHR certified, and then their clients haven't adopted their G10 updates, so they're not paying for it. So we have this huge interoperability gap that needs to get solved. So I'm very, very excited about all of this.
2: So Jen, I'm curious, are do you have a bunch of uh, e- emails or, or documents ready to go on Friday where you're going to be submitting complaints to, uh, to the ONC website about uh, these EHRs?
3: Uh, I have a different tactic. So what I did was January 15th-ish, I sent out mass emails, and then I did it again in March. And then I went, I, we kind of talked a lot to the EHRs who really don't understand the law. Like, I think it's an opportunity for the Sequoia Project to actually step up and really through that uh, interoperability matters, work groups do a lot of education to the 200 plus EHRs and HIEs, um, but I just, there was such a pushback from so many EHRs that I felt like and I'm not talking about the top 10 vendors like they're good to go it's everybody plus like uh, it's like 12 plus um my plan is you know maybe not September 1st probably do it like September 5th i'm going to email everybody again because now going forward it is enforceable everything before that i couldn't file a complaint i can't you know give feedback because it wouldn't matter now there's actually penalties associated to it um and i even would send some of the EHRs links being like, hey, the September 1st deadline is coming up. And their response is, well, it's not September 1st yet. Okay, (laughs) it's September 1st. (laughs) It's time. I'm ready. But the HIE thing, you know, I think it's a good segue into our next topic. I went to uh, the Civitas annual meeting where I saw some of these lovely faces and wanted to see what HIEs were thinking. And David knows this better than I do. It is a mixed bag out there.
0: Well, yeah, it's it's sorry, Steve. I, mean, I think not surprising that it's a mixed bag among HIEs because you know, kind of like you were just saying, Jan. I think it's a, it's a mixed bag in in every category uh, as to whether there 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 are people who understand it or not. But but yeah, go they're ahead.
3: Being, yeah. That's the whole point of what Devin's saying. They are named. It's like CERT technology vendors, HIEs, penalties. Like you are named.
2: Yeah, except it's important to remember that the definition of an HIEHIN in the information blocking rule is it's not about what you're named. It's not about what you call yourself. It's a functional definition. It has to do with the role you actually play in exchanging data. You're facilitating or overseeing or controlling the exchange of data between two other parties, who are exchanging that data for purposes of treatment payment and healthcare operations. So it's, yes, all the things that are probably almost all the folks who call themselves an HIE or an HIN are covered, but then a lot of other folks are covered too. Uh, and I think like providers, like, I mean, my provider organization provides EHR uh, services, provides technology to other small practices in our community and, uh, and and they do that, you know, for for free or a nominal fee. I'm not even sure which. But that is, you are in fact an HIN when you are providing that because you are controlling the exchange of data between two other unrelated entities. So payers, PBMs, there there are a lot of folks out there who would meet the functional definition of HIE HIN as it's written into the rule. So yes, we should pay attention to the the HIE community. You know what that it is. Um, But we also need to think about other uh, entities that are going to be subject to these same complaints starting on Friday.
3: I love where you're going. But I think for at least, you know, let's just say September through end of the year. I think like the most important thing is like if somebody made a master list of which HIEs like state, like the the HIEs that took funding from the government or new spin ups or whatever, the ones that are representing to be, you know, facilitating. exchange at the state or local level that aren't also maybe a covered entity, like a provider or a um, payer. So like more of the BAA type organizations, I'd really like to see who's going to facilitate or enable that kind of access to data. Like that's the first group that I would be interested in because we already know where EHRs are at. Like I have a good sense of that landscape. We know where payers are at. I think for the HIE definition, like I don't want to call out names, but I'm so tempted to. But you know, you know who we're talking about here.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, Jennifer. Um, even though the definition is a functional one and it's quite possible that, um, that it sweeps in a lot of entities that previously never considered themselves to be HIEs or HINs, those are, I don't want to call them edge cases, but the OIG could already have a lot of low-hanging fruit For things that call themselves HIEs, right? Mm -hmm. Without necessarily needing to try to bring a case and sustain it through, uh, you know, objective court review against an entity that never called itself an HIE, but has this functionality that it offers. Um, You know, it might depend on how egregious the behavior was, what kind of complaint comes in, whether they want to pursue something like that or not. But there's already some pretty obvious cases that they could bring. Um, and, you know, Jennifer, we're not naming names here, but certainly some some much more, again, low-hanging fruit, easier to bring. And in terms of in terms of your earlier um, point, Stephen, about like maybe OIG isn't going to start right out of the gate with a big fat penalty. But to the extent that there are patterns that they are seeing in the complaints that get filed, that they can then tell C, let's get an FAQ out on this because we're starting to see a pattern of behavior that doesn't look good. We'll get an FAQ that's really spot on about the bad behavior. And that puts people on notice and then gives the agency even more comfort in we're going to start whacking, he- you know, getting out the, the bad,
3: the, the million dollar
1: penalty bat and whacking some people with it because they're going to have to ultimately do that if they want if in order for the information blocking rules to be taken seriously. But there is a, there's definitely a long history, and it started with HIPAA, and it may have even started prior to that, of agencies being reluctant to to sort of bring the full force of penalties right at, right, right at the outset when they start enforcing, to instead, you know, try to create they're not, they don't have the ability to do opinion letters, but just through the through through a collaborative arrangement with ONC to start Addressing through more pointed FAQs, some of the some of the behavior that's gone on that has not been corrected through. I, you know,
3: right. it, I can't remember when this was happening, but definitely like so it must have been like Cures Act final rule dropped right when COVID started, right? And I feel like there was this period where there was a lot of cases of going after um, violations of patient right of access through traditional chart retrieval, right? There like, there was a lot. Now there's a lot of record of that. So I felt like they did that on purpose. They were like timing it as a warm Mm -hmm. up being like, look, we're going to go after paper records. We're definitely coming after digital. So I don't, I don't think that was, I think that was planned in my perspective. I thought it was planned.
2: Yeah, it's always felt that way to me. I'm curious, Devin, maybe you know, are they the same people, the people who've been doing the right of access investigations and penalties, are they the same folks who are going to now be doing the info blocking or it's a different office, right? It's a
1: different Different office. office.
2: Yeah, it's OCR versus OIG, is that right? It's
1: OCR versus OIG, although OIG has always um, done a bit of HIPAA enforcement of its own, not HIPAA like as official enforcers of HIPAA, but under their, you know, sort of other traditional authorities around false claims and, you know, people sort of submitting attestations that they were HIPAA compliant, but they weren't. And, you know, OIG sort of in in the investigations that they have done under their traditional longstanding authorities to to ferret out fraud and false claims of sharing information back with OCR about things that they see in their investigation. So there's a long history of a collaborative relationship between those two offices, but those are very, you know, HIPAA enforcement is, is done by OCR. OCR does no information blocking rule enforcement, but they will refer things to one another for sure.
2: The other question I have about that is what about the sort of the penalties themselves, the the eat what you kill? Do both of the offices have the same setup there?
1: I believe so. Yes.
2: So the money that comes in through penalties goes back into their coffers and allows them to hire more people and do more investigations, et cetera. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I have a prediction that the amount of complaints are going to be smaller, not because people don't want to complain, but because of fear of retaliation. Um, mm-hmm. by the EHR vendors or providers, because if you're trying to obviously access data from one of these organizations, you know, if you are, and it just depends on if, if I, think, I think we saw that a lot of the complaints were coming from law firms who were trying to request records and patients who have been trying to request records and stuff like that. I do think that there's going to be a fear of retaliation from vendors if you complain against them. So I do think the numbers are gonna be smaller and I think we're gonna what's gonna emerge is like a user group that actually does file all those complaints and they're gonna to need to educate education materials around that. Or it's gonna be super grassroots. It's gonna be like a small little organization who does it, right? I think it's gonna be harder for bigger organizations that are encountering it. And I don't think it's just gonna be the patient access side. I think it's gonna be really hard for provider to provider data exchange when an EHR is saying no or a provider saying no and like how much do they want to get in a fight at you know the federal level? I think you're going to see that.
0: Yeah, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Jen. No, on. you
3: go ahead, Dave. You
1: haven't. You, haven't, <laughs> you get a word in edgewise <laughs> on this call.
0: <laughs> it, it, it's it's great. I, I love not not having to, to you know <laughs> do any active moderation at all as it as it turns out. But but uh, no, I was going to say, you know, Jen, I think that that's an interesting point. It's a it's a fascinating. Game theory problem, really, to, to, to think about how different types of entities are are, are going to be looking at this. One, one of the questions that I was actually going to raise was if people were, were thinking, if you go back to those statistics that Stephen referenced earlier and the fact that there were only, what did you say, Stephen, three complaints against HIEs and HINs, if if some of that was was potentially due to the patient heavy focus uh, of some of those initial complaints, and the patients themselves were thinking more in terms of their 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 provider organizations as opposed to an HIE or a HIN, and now that it's it's the big time, so to speak, are we going to see more? organizations and commercial entities starting to weigh in and and that's where Jen it sounds like you're you're speculating that maybe not for various strategic calculus reasons uh, interested in in what what folks think there in general
3: well let me just reframe my perspective when information blocking first went effect so that's April 5th 2021 Devin is that right sounds right I feel like that's right that's good yeah. I mm-hmm. I thought okay it's in effect. And I remember reaching out to all these organizations, didn't care. And I realized it was actually easier to influence them and have them change how they, you know, their, their interpretation of the law and their implementation by educating them and saying, Hey, point." like I do this all the time. I email at Devin or I email all these people and I'm like, Hey, can you, can you educate me on this? And then I take that. I'm like, Hey, this is my opinion. This is not anybody else's opinion. This is my opinion. And it, they, are receptive to it. But there are organizations now who this is their first time having to do give access, right? So excluding the top 10 vendors, the HIEs, the 200 plus EHR products, and they are going to be on the defensive. And it is going to be a strategic choice if it's an organization and if they want to submit an information blocking complaint. I think you're going to see a higher adoption of information blocking complaints from individuals, law firms who are requesting on behalf of patients for you know, personal injury and stuff like that, or anything that's a little bit more administrative because they understand the law. I think it's if it's like maybe provider-to-provider exchange or ehr to HR exchange, are they really going to take it up to that level or try and work it out amongst themselves? That's a TBD. Uh, and I know this, people are whispering this to me. It's not just my opinions. These are these are the whispers.
1: <laughs> oh, no, for sure. I mean, I've had some side conversations with folks about sort of fear of complaining because of retaliation, Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's understandable on the other hand, if you have evidence that someone's retaliating against you, it only strengthens the case that the government
3: is that that enough of a business value and it's business to business, right? Like I can tell you, I file a complaint very early on and it, you know, because it was very specific, they, but even though it was, um, What's the word? But you don't know it's me. Anonymous. Anonymous. They still knew it was me. And I got called out in a room. And, you know, that did teach me a lesson of like, what kind of complaints don't want to issue? And can I actually go through the channels directly with the organization Mm. and point to that and try and educate? I do think this is where Sequoia and ONC and everybody really needs to be proactive on educational materials and FAQs and really responding to that kind of feedback. Because if there's going to be a place that a proper info blocking complaint, which is the repetitive behavior, which makes sense for why OIG would investigate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're spot on. And frankly, the carrot usually works better than the stick, right? I don't really want to file a complaint, but I think it's a pretty clear violation. Let's talk and let's figure out a way to make this work and a reasonable time frame for
3: for getting there. Yeah, and there should be a good feedback cycle back to the government for future rulemaking. Because yeah. I, I do think that there's a lot of places in the law that, like, government kind of missed on understanding what this looked like in reality.
1: Oh, for sure. You know, they you fly blind when you sit in that regulator's chair, to the most part. You're trying to anticipate, um, you know a little bit about what the problems are, or you, you couldn't really pick up the pen but then you do your best to sort of figure out a solution and you don't necessarily think of some of the consequences. I think the that proposal, for example, that we saw in HTI1 that was reasonably intended as an incentive to utilize Tefka, you know, we very quickly, I, I think some of us who commented, Don Rucker said something about it. We, the, the tech committee said something about it. Basically like don't create a disincentive for using the APIs. By allowing people to pull, you know, to pull an entity into TEFCA for exchanging data without any of the protections of the fee restrictions or anything like that. Like you've, you've sort of got. It creates a lot of problem, more problems maybe than they realized. So I'll,
3: um, I'll give you guys a good example of the EHR. I'm not going to say who they are or oh, I won't identify them, but I'll give you an example. of What they built is. The, the, it's a little game we'll play. So there's an EHR that is big enough that I care about it, and they do have a patient portal that is sometimes branded to them and sometimes branded to their customer, and their implementation of their Fire API is it is one universal Fire API, and it gives you access to all their clients, which I love that but they will not publish a client list. So like, you know, client A, B, C, D, E with the universal fire URL. And also the fire URL, when you call it and you go to the OAuth screen for the patient, it's branded to them. So the reasoning behind this is that they don't want to share their client list. They have stood up at OAuth 2.0 spec. It follows the spec. The spec doesn't say anything about like, You know, they built a new workflow to support OAuth in this case, instead of kind of reusing the existing um, credentials. And in order to auth, the user actually has to register. So they're asking the user to register in order to authenticate against this brand new portal. But the portal does give the user access to all their data, but the user won't know where all their data is because if we as a third party application, you know, push them to production, it's going to just say the EHR's name. And how am I, as a patient, going to know this EHR is connected to that provider organization? And a lot of times when you call provider organizations, this is also a funny thing. When you say, hey, which EHR do you use? They get really suspicious because they think you're trying to hack into their system. So, like, in this case, technically, this organization did not, they did everything correct. They followed the spec, but their interpretation of the law and how to protect their organization is going to, not there won't be ever any user adoption of the spire api so like this is where you know the they follow the cert technology g10 spec and all the things they need to do there but it doesn't follow the intent of the law which is to give patients easy access to their data it, it really makes it harder for a third-party application to connect and allow a user to find their data and then that's going to be the area that i think you're going to see a lot of fighting in and i've seen this with a couple of vendors and that's the thing that really gets me. For me, this is information blocking because it's still making it hard for users to find their data.
0: I certainly understand. Oh, sorry, go ahead, John. I talked to everybody. Follow
3: that. I, I, that, that, that is a, a very good example without showing you the screens or talking about the person.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting point about the, the EHRs and their client lists or, you know, any company really and their their client lists. There's some sensitivity there, but but it is a case where Great, you have a, a vendor level API portal that, as you say, follows all the rules, but but is it actually functional if you have no idea who lives behind that portal, so to speak, from a provider organization standpoint? I think that's there's there's some really interesting arguments to dig into there. When when we were in the early days of Cura Quality, this was actually a big issue in the context of the Cura Quality Directory. And to the extent that there's some 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 very uh, you know interesting and carefully awkwardly worded language in the care quality connected agreement around confidentiality with respect to the directory was trying to straddle this middle oh ground God. of saying. Yes, you know the other implementers do need to be able to understand wh- whose gateways are are under you know which implementer, that sort of thing. But at the same time, you can't take that beyond the sphere of the care quality community and just be publishing other people's client lists. The uh, so there there was there was sensitivity to that in in those that context as well, and it doesn't surprise me that it's here again.
3: And that's why I think it's going to show up in Tefka too. I kind of was trying to make that point earlier because we have this directory for TEFCA and you can only be listed once. And so it means you can only be part of one QN. And so it's going to pop up for EHRs and providers no matter what. It's just, and to me, like it's easier to solve this problem right now in the fire landscape because the spec is so clear, right? Like it, you can, you can point to the cert, to the G10 update and say, this is what you need to do. And some proposed rules about publishing fire hills client level. So I think this is gonna be a, a topic that keeps coming up over the next couple of years. And not a lot of people know about it. It's only the people, the early adopters like ourselves who kind of have a general sense of what's ahead.
2: You know, um, even though it didn't come up uh, in the context of information blocking or the this coming September 1st uh, deadline, um, it did come up last week at Civitas, this whole question of patients accessing their data from HIEs. Uh, and there, there were a number of. I, I was in one of the sessions, and different HAs were were hold, raising their hand. They say, you oh, know, I don't think we should let patients access their data. You know, just uh, I or you know, I think <laughs> well maybe we sh- we could let them do that if they went through like an IAL two type identity verification. Or maybe, you know, it was really like they they hadn't been part of the discussion, a no. lot of these folks. Yeah. You know? and, and I think that was the point that you were making, Devin, is that the HIEs need to wake up. I mean, this is like three days away. Right. And uh, and you really you have to become a part of this discussion. And it's also important, I think, to differentiate patients accessing the data about them that's already in the HIE versus patients using the HIE to make a query for other data from you know the national networks or another HIE or another connected organization those are two different things patient access is just the static data that you have available about me today versus patient queries where you're going out and getting you know new data from additional sources
3: could you go into that i actually i think that's really important what you just said cuz i
2: thought you conflated them a little in your comments
3: but i know the difference as you're like as you're articulating that I, for, for the people at the back, could you explain <laughs> that more?
2: So with with information blocking, the issue is that a, a, an entity, or in this case, the patient, would go to a data holder, in this case, an HIE, and say, I want to copy all of my data. And, uh, and they would say, you know, either yes or no, or I have a way to manage that or I don't. Um, but they, you know, an individual can ask for all of the electronic health information that that data holder has on them. And if they are, there is not some other restriction, if it's, if it's prohibited in their data use agreements or their business associate agreements or something else, then they can hide behind those. But in the absence of that kind of protection, they, they have to provide that access. But they don't have to also go out and trigger a query. They don't have to say to their their HIE participants, uh, hey, give me your latest information on you know Jose. Uh, or they don't have to trigger a query to eHealth Exchange or Care Quality to say, hey, give me the latest data on Jose. That's a different function than simply providing access to the data that they have.
3: So I don't know if we have time, but I'm gonna go into this a little bit more. The and that's interesting because when you, you brought up the definition of what is an HIE, what is an HIN, what's on the book, right? So there are certain HINs that do not store data, right? They only facilitate the exchange. They do not have access to it, but they have to enable patient access so that you can query through that HIN or, or network to get data. But you're saying for the HIEs, like the real, let's let's just call it, like I, I'm a New Yorker, New York State HIE or Florida HIE that the data that can be made available is just the data that they have in a storage capacity, not going and querying down to their participant level to get new data?
1: No,
2: that's not accurate.
1: No, if the HIE is, a, is, what was, is basically a federated model and it doesn't persist data, but the way that it operates for the queries it currently supports is to ping the sources and then return the data to the requester, then they need to do that for patients as well. Because there are lots of different models of HIEs in the country. Some, some persist data, some do not. The, the right of act, you know, the ability to to sort of open those very same pipes and those very same processes to patient access, I think is what's required by the information blocking rule unless they've got a state law prohibition, The contractual prohibition and the business associate agreement is one that ONZ hasn't really fully opined on yet. So absent some sort of other reason why they're not exchanging, they use the tools of their trade and their capabilities. I thought what Stephen was saying was, there isn't anything that requires the HIE to go beyond what it normally does and query data sources that it doesn't already query for its other use cases. Okay. So, More. like, if patient wants to use HIE to query other HIEs, like, that's not required, unless they yeah. offer that service already for another population. And then if they can't offer it to patients, they better have a good reason, because there isn't any reason why they couldn't use those same pipes with some additional process on top of it. This might be our best podcast yet. <laughs> Dave's looking quizzical right i well, mean so,
0: so i'm, I'm just trying to say
1: mandate to to respond to patients you still have some you know you have to have a good reason a valid reason for saying no which is why you know some of the materials that we've put out about the information blocking rule have not been like you and believe me i've had to push back on my people on this it's not an absolute requirement but after september 1 somebody else is going to look at your reasons for saying no and they better be defensible
0: so so i'm i'm thinking through different different players that are out there well for that matter even even thinking about how how we approach uh, our compliance at health gorilla with with information blocking and i think there there definitely are some some interesting scenarios there if you start looking at everyone you are connected to and is the patient exercising their right of access to to your data that you hold the, the 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 data that you hold for them their their record for you i think that's that's an interesting construct so let's just imagine a there there exists a federated ehr vendor network where Uh, any of the participants in in that network are able to access all of the other participants in that EHR vendor network? Are you saying that if I were to go to any one of the providers who participates in that network, they need to get a consolidated record for me across all of the other participants as well?
3: Um, I'm going to try and say this back. So, EHR one is let's say a client of Australia, and EHR one has a hub, and within EHR one's hub, there are other EHRs participating in the hub. Is well, that-
0: let's let's to let's let's avoid naming names, but but there but the, this construct of there being if you have frankly, I, I my my sort sort of personal understanding would be that if you were operating a federated network, it's not that you're completely off the hook from all constructs of information blocking, but but you aren't holding records from for the patient per se. So I so it,
1: I totally disagree.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, I've never heard this opinion, Dev, and I really appreciate this. Uh, I, and, and I'm, I'm curious. So what it, about it, the one that what about the one that does hold the data and is has a network? If a patient comes with a with an information request, do they just give them the data that they're holding or do they also need to go out and query their network?
1: No. Think about what you said earlier, Stephen, about the definition of HIE and HIN being a functional one Mm -hmm. and not at all being dependent on whether you physically hold the data. If you facilitate, if you control the rules around exchange, you are an HIE or HIN. And so requests that come into you for data for which it is lawful, For you to return data through whatever mechanism you use to control, to facilitate, you need to return the data absent some obstacle, maybe one that fits in a safe harbor, maybe one that does not, but you think it's pretty defensible.
2: An exception, yeah. for
1: saying no. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, we're going to expect you to utilize whatever is the thing that got you into information blocking in the first place in order to facilitate lawful exchange of EHI. Now, where what I took your comments to mean, Stephen, where you were drawing a distinction between,, um, you know, what you have to produce in response to request is, let's say, I'm a federated HIE, I don't persist any data, but the way that I operate is to pass queries on to my members and then, re- and, and I have a set of rules that require them to respond to certain types of queries and they've all signed agreements and um, and I've got, you know, those are the pipes that we can expect everyone else to be able to connect into arguably. Under, under information blocking. What it does not obligate that HIE to do is to say, oh, you know what? I don't have any nursing homes in my network, but somebody's asking me for data from this nursing home. Information blocking does not require me to go out and get data from that nursing home just because you asked for it. Do you see the distinction? It's, it's what are you offering as an HIE HIN and as long as the query is within those constructs, but maybe it's a purpose that you haven't accepted before, but it's a lawful, you know, exchange of data, that's where you have to, as an HIU right HIN, start looking at how's my network being used, the network I either persist data for or that I control or facilitate, you know, what other expectations am I gonna run for those pipes? doesn't mean I have to go out and get more people in my network, doesn't mean that if I don't have that data, but Health Gorilla does, I now have to connect to Health Gorilla in order to facilitate that data. It's just, what- But if you are
0: connected to Health Gorilla, is your contention that you should be querying us to pull what we have?
1: Well, I think it depends on what the offering of the HIE is to its members.
0: Okay, so so hypothetically, we were part of that HIE's offering, then you're saying, yes, you should, you should be querying. I would make an argument
1: that okay. I should. Now, if somebody said, it, it, you know, an HIE could say, well, I can't run health gorilla queries. This is a bad example because you guys are open to just about everything. But let's say, I can't, everything that's legal, you're opening up to <laughs> access, right? But let, let's say it's a network where patient access is not a required response. We may know a network for which that's not the case, right? And you know, that might not obligate you to launch a query into that network just because you're connected to them for a use case that is not a mandatory support use case for that network. Does that this make
3: sense? Needs to be mapped out? This needs like we we actually need to take this recording. Health gorilla, you need to take your graphics team and we need to map this out and then we need to talk about this on the next podcast because this is tricky. Look, I
1: mean, you know, somebody might see this and go, Devin is wrong, you know, fight me on this because I'm feeling pretty confident about it, as you can tell, (laughs)
0: All right,
1: with the caveat that again, information blocking does not create absolutes, it creates expectations. Can you rebut those expectations? Yes, you have the ability to do that. But after September 1st, if you're an agent, you meet that definition of HIE or HIN, or you meet the qualities of a certified EHR vendor, somebody else is going to look at your excuses and decide whether they're sufficient enough or not (laughs) which you know okay makes it interesting
0: yeah certainly interesting for especially for for certain types of networks well, I said, there, there is, you know, to your to your point, I think there's there's some feasibility elements and and the expectations that you're setting of how your network operates. If there really is no construct of supporting uh, uh, queries in general for patient access, maybe that helps helps in in a weird way. But I, but so, Jen, go ahead.
3: I so I, something I heard at Civitas a lot actually my favorite person who spoke at Civitas was from Chris and she said she was she said something along the lines of if you're not at the table you're what's for dinner and you have to re and we're gonna have to reinvest into our infrastructure so I think it's HIEs are thinking about the next 10 years of their life and they're making investments back into their existing architecture and they're not thinking about patient access that has to be there Have like to me that can't be an infeasibility. If you're putting money back into your business and your technology stack and you're not enabling patient access, ooh, I'm gonna have words.
2: But that's a key question that's come up through the whole information blocking exception process is just because you could do something, are you gonna be required to do it do it? Are you gonna be required to build new tech, to provide new services? In order to meet these requests, and what, where is the limitation going to be? And frankly, this is going to be our first opportunity to start to see those those questions answered, right? Because OIG is going to have to uh, address that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. How 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 much can we get people to go outside of their traditional comfort zones? Um, how much are we going to require them to, as sort of a condition of? You know be you know as part of the expectations that come with being an actor under the info blocking rules
3: okay so let's say they they don't reinvest and they don't expose some sort of api or participate via e-health exchange and a national exchange in some sort what about like the other thing that they're going to fall back on is their existing contracts we've already heard that right yeah that
1: and, well so it's interesting i i some of the FAQs on this are a little contradictory. There's one FAQ that says your previous contracts do not anesthetize you from information blocking, and then there's another FAQ that says, "Well, we're not going to ha- we're not going to require you to violate your business associate agreement, but if you discriminate, then that's going to be a problem."
0: I, I could see there being a way you could could split that difference very carefully in terms of there being a distinction between a a business associate agreement and a a network data sharing contract, although the two tend to be closely intertwined.
1: They're closely intertwined. And my my beef is that if you basically allow people to buy contract, get themselves out of exchanging data for any purpose for which they could lawfully exchange you're basically kicking a gigantic door open for collusion.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, and I I would say maybe if you bring it, bring the provider back into this, I think a provider might be able to, or, or an HIE might be able to say, look, uh, you know, contracts, et cetera. I don't have to give you Jenny's record at Acme provider organization But if you go to Acme Provider Organization, nothing about this HIE contract has anything to do with the fact that they still have a fundamental obligation to give Jenny her records.
1: Right. But you're making it harder on the patient. You're requiring them to go place by place by place when instead they could just come to you
3: and get the one-stop shop thing. I think that's
2: what a lot of HIEs are going to say they're going to do.
3: This is an edge case, but I feel like it ties to this. So... Something else with um, all the EHRs is there's a lot of providers who still don't use cert technology or there's a lot of providers who use a vendor that might have like a cert module and then a non-cert module. And something I've been trying to figure out is like, you know, what percentage of the population is using that non-certified technology? And then is there an overlap? Are they participating in a state HIE? And then that there's the question of, Okay, I can't get my data via FIRE API because the provider doesn't have cert technology in place, but the provider participates within this HIE. But this HIE says, I can't get my data because of either uh, state law or contract. And that that's gonna these are the questions that when they start deciding how providers are gonna be penalized, I don't know. These are things that I think about is like how how do you get full coverage of every provider in the United States that I can say to a consumer that yes, you can get all your data in one place via one record, right? It's this coverage idea. And a lot of these questions aren't being asked yet because we don't have enough information, but this is where these edge cases really push the limits on how the law is written and how it's going to be implemented.
0: Well, I think you're right, Jen. I think this has been one of our best discussions. And, and we, we had a we had a whole other set of topics teed up to to potentially get to, uh, w- one of which was going to be you know the some some feedback on on the the, the Civitas conference that actually did end up coming up a, a few times uh, with, with respect to to this information blocking topic but I think that this was a great discussion so with that plug thanks everyone as always great conversation and uh, we'll see you next time.